Welcome to another episode of Bell Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGEN. My name is Jennifer Lee, Pediatric Gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tamara Hajat. Hey, everybody. I'm Tamara Hajat. I'm from Cincinnati Children's, and I'm excited to be here today. Tamara, this episode's coming out the first week of January 2022. Mm -hmm. What is your New Year's resolution? My New Year's resolution. So funny story, every December, like late December, my sister and I used to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and eat there. I don't know why it's Buffalo Wild Wings. I think we just went sometime for like wings and I used to eat there. Yeah. And then we would write our New Year's resolution on like a uh, Buffalo Wild Wings tissue mm. and we would save it. And then I realized every year, <laughs> it's just copy paste from the year before. Well, what was it? <laughs> I don't know. Being active, read more. I don't know, like do more, travel more, all of that. It was the same thing every year. So I was like, okay, no more New Year's resolution. <laughs> I just have them memorized right now. (laughs) Well, I mean, so I also don't really do New Year's resolutions. I think every year I always say the same things also like exercise, whatever. But you know what I did this year to make something actually happen is I signed up for another half marathon. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I did one in October of last year. So this will be the second one. It is the Columbus, Columbus, Ohio health half marathon in April. You should drive up and do it with me. Yeah. You want to run 13 miles? My knees and my shins don't like running. A new skill that I'm going to learn is piano. Ooh. Do you have a teacher already for your lessons? So um, I'm taking lessons through UC and I don't know how to read music and I never played any instrument. So it'd be interesting to learn piano. So I'm going to do a 101 class for piano, but I'm looking to buy like either a piano or a, um, what do they call those? Like electric keyboard or something like like that. Like a keyboard. Yeah. I'm looking to buy a keyboard. So I have an electric piano um, and it has weighted keys. It's pretty awesome. Do you recommend those? I love it. You can plug headphones in. So if you don't, I bought it when I lived in an apartment, so I wouldn't play and annoy the neighbors, but you can like plug in your headphones and it feels like a real piano, but it's electric. I should probably get one of those. That's probably better. And then I'll uh, come to your house and play. Mary has a little. (laughs) (laughs) So if we're talking about skills to learn, I have a new skill I really want to do in 2022 also. And that's the drums. Did I tell you about how I'm trying to learn? But you're in a (laughs) band, right? So I used to be in a band, but I play the rhythm guitar. So Mm -hmm. I knew about 10 or 12 chords and that was it. And it was super fun, right? You just go up and you learn the different rhythms, but I really want to learn to play the drums. So I love that. Yeah. So we have a drum set. I bought an app online called Drumio. 
And I just started a couple weeks ago. That is awesome. Maybe uh, we can be in a band together. Nest begin 2022. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about none other than advances in biliary atresia, something that we don't see very often, but when we do, you know, it can be very devastating for our patients. And I just think it's so important to talk about. And you know, we had an episode in season one with Dr. Bill Balistrieri that everyone should go back and listen to. It was really great. But today we're bringing your boss to the show, Tamara. Mm-hmm. Yes, my boss, Dr. Georgie Vizera. So Dr. Vizera is the director of the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition and the medical director of Pediatric Liver Care Center here at Cincinnati Children's in Cincinnati, Ohio. His uh, interest is actually in biliatresia, and today we'll talk a lot about organoids, and we'll talk about new measure, like lab for biliatresia. I it's this is something new that I didn't know before. It's the MMP seven, so that's very exciting. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Under the show. Welcome, Dr. Pizera, to Bowel Sounds. We're excited to have you here, and uh, we're excited to talk to you about advances in biliatresia. Very happy to have you today. Oh, it is actually my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me to do this. Uh, one thing that I'm wondering is. Why Bowel Sounds? Perhaps this podcast can be best named Liver Sounds. Uh, <laughs> but does the liver make a sound? That's the question. Well, it depends on how you see and you think about it. We <laughs> pediatric hepatologists get so excited. We almost can hear the cells talk and the oh. bile flow. It all depends on where one, one's mind actually resides. Maybe liver talks. Liver talk, I like that. Or it could be percussions, percussions of the liver. Uh, I like that. That sounds good. (laughs) But I will say we had several, when we were first coming up with this title for bowel sounds, there were several other title options. And I'm sorry, but the liver was not one of them. I think the second place was tummy talks. I like, I actually like bowel sounds, uh, tummy talks, but also uh, your liver talks. They'll be okay too. So that's true. Liver talks or liver percussion. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Bezerra, um, we like to get to know our guests and um, um, a possibly challenging question for you. For, a, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, that's a good question. I would say that I'm a person who loves his family, enjoys his work tremendously, and someone that likes to serve the patients, work with colleagues, and serve the community. I think in saying that, perhaps I can almost disclose what I feel most important about life, which is to really do what you are passionate about. Absolutely, absolutely. And advocate for the liver. <laughs> yes, advocate for the liver. 
So tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend. It does not have to be liver related, but it can be too. Yes, absolutely. I really uh, like to read uh, quite a bit. And I like to read books that inspire, books that teach us something, but also books that uh, tell a story that makes me relax. But actually to answer your question, let me tell you about a book that gives me a chance to reflect on how to live the day fully and not be exhausted at the end of the day. The book's title is called Essentialism or How to Seek What's Essential and Important to You. It's a book by Greg McKeown. This book really discussed the concept that in a busy life like yours and mine, it is indeed wise to eliminate things that are not essential. How can I, George Bezerra, try not to fit at all so that I can be all for everyone? I can't, right? Yeah. Perhaps instead we can think about how can we choose wisely so that I can be a few things that really matter to those around me. The book has some nice little suggestions, like always try to build a buffer in your time estimate. We always try to think that we can do this in 20 minutes, but actually we should be thinking about 40 minutes or an hour to give us extra time. And I like this book so much that it teaches me quite a bit. And I like to buy it and give to people that work with me, especially when they come and they look so busy and exhausted. So I think it'll be good for us to do what's priority for us, not for us to prioritize a long list of things that we just want to do. Tamara, did he buy you that book? How busy do you look when you're working? <laughs> Maybe I don't look busy enough. <laughs> yes, but I, I, but I think that we probably have purchased eight or nine of them. One day that Tamara looks uh, very busy, I'll have one to say, just read it. It's really helpful. Well, the uh, other takeaway from that discussion is that you are prioritizing bowel sounds today. So we yeah. are so grateful that this was essential for you. That's think true. about it. The ability to actually share some thoughts about the disease that has devastating consequences for the, for the child that is affected. And then think that others would listen and then perhaps have a greater insight into the disease and how to help the kids. That's, that's a priority for me, for sure. Moving on, Dr. Bezerra, you're the ASLD uh, president. Congratulations. We really want to hear the story of how you developed your interest in biliatresia and how you became passionate about it. Sure. Actually, um, uh, having been able to serve in the SLD governing board and then become its president in 2020, the year when COVID really broke everybody's plans, is indeed one of the uh, highlights of professional career. But I actually have a very simple origin. Born in Brazil, number six of 10 children. Can you believe it? Our family actually had very few resources, but our father and mother emphasized the importance to going to school, taking studies seriously, and doing what you feel passionate about. 
I think as I reflect, I embraced and I carry those teachings with me throughout my training. And then I saw myself transitioning to a faculty position. And in the beginning, all I did was study liver regeneration. And in doing so, seeing how the liver works. And then I learned powerful biochemical tools. It was while in the lab that things were going so well and I thought, how can I apply it to solving some of the clinical problems that I was seeing in my practice, right? And there was one particular technology that I thought, wow, maybe I can use that. And that is when I was able to use some of the early arrays that studied, let's say, 2,000 genes. Now we study all of them in one essay. But back then, to be able to actually look at the expression of almost 2,000 genes in one essay brought a whole new world of possibilities. And I said, can I use this to study a disease that is very poorly understood? And back then it was biliary atresia. It is still difficult to understand today. So that's when we applied that gene array in patients with biliary atresia and really began to see what are the molecules that may be driving the pathogenesis of disease. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I think we have, this is our second episode about biliary atresia. Dr. Bezerra, what is biliary atresia? Well, biliary atresia is actually the most common and most severe cholangiopathy of infancy. We had our first episode with Dr. Balistrieri uh, last year where we talked about the basics of biliary atresia. So for any of our listeners, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that. And we like to ask, we asked him quite a few controversial questions. I do encourage you to go and listen to Dr. Balistrieri's podcast. But going back about uh, to biliary atresia, it really uh, is a disease that targets the bile ducts. It obstructs the lumen of the ducts by fibrosis and completely block the flow of bile from the liver to the duodenum and remainder of the small and large intestine. But it's a disease that has one goal, unfortunately, that is to destroy the bile ducts. It's a true pediatric disease. It always manifests in the first two to three months of age, never late. When it's diagnosed late, it means that it was not diagnosed early. So a true pediatric disease. Why is it, a, why is it very critical for us to diagnose patients with biliatresia early? Yes, uh, simply because the earlier the diagnosis and the younger the patient, the highest is the likelihood that the patient will respond to the Kasai portoenterostomy. There are several studies about biliary atresia looking at its seasonal variability, perhaps uh, the geography of the disease, potential maternal factors that influence outcome, or is it the severity of jaundice, elevation of liver enzymes? Among all these studies and all these factors, age, at diagnose is the most reproducible factor that seems to guide or drive the response to that surgical procedure. 
Therefore, it's early diagnosis should be the priority to all of us so that the patient can then uh, have a surgical consultation and proper surgical treatment. So you mentioned that biliary atresia, we have known about it for a while. I think it was first described in 1891 by someone named John Thompson, but now it's 130 years later and our pathogenesis is still not fully understood. So can you walk us through what the pathogenesis is of biliary atresia? Be glad to, actually, I beg to differ. I think that we are living in the future already and we know more about the pathogens of disease. It's multifactorial. I'll give you a few facts. The first, that is a very aggressive fibrotic process. It's chief mechanism of disease is progressive and it's rapid. So we know fibrosis. We knew before, we know now. But we also know that there is an initial epithelial injury. What causes the epithelial injury? Viruses have been implicated and demonstrated, such as cytomegalovirus. You can have a coexistence of active CMV infection and biliary atresia. But other viruses as well, such as rheovirus, rotavirus, human papilloma virus, one might ask if virus is one key element of etiology of disease, why isn't it that we don't follow and see the virus in every case of biliary atresia? Well, actually we had insight into it when we used the animal model of rotavirus-induced neonatal injury in mice. And even in mice that we inject the rotavirus to induce a very reproducible clinical histological feature in neonatal mice like we have in human biliary atresia, 14 days later, we try to check for the rotavirus and it's negative. So we know that the infant is able to clear the virus. Therefore, the absence of virus detection in the tissue of a baby with biliary atresia does not mean that it's not started by a virus. So it's still a strong possibility that virus has a role in that initial epithelial injury. The third component is inflammation, that there are variable degrees of inflammation and perhaps the, the degree of inflammation may be related to a stage of disease. So the earlier the, you, you analyze the tissue, what inflammation you might find. And more recently, I studied and looked at, they used a single cell transcriptomic really gave a single cell view of the immune ecosystem of delivering babies with biliary atresia. And you can see that inflammation is quite prominent. And then uh, more recently, studies uh, published from uh, Texas Children's Hospital led by Sunny Harpovat show that the disease actually has prenatal onset. So today, I actually think that we know much more uh, than we did before. And our next challenge is how can we use this knowledge to begin to design novel therapies to block the progressive fibrosis and hopefully have patients live longer with the native liver with lower level of comorbidities and complications. So I do have two questions. The first question is, so when does the injury happen, prenatal or postnatal? Does that make a difference? I was uh, an early skeptical. I was quite doubtful that the disease started early on. But I think that these uh, population studies done in the Houston area 
clearly show that the universe is the same, that if you are able to screen babies early on, those that had increase in direct bilirubin in the, in the first few days of life, a subpopulation of those develop biliary atresia. So if you follow a patient population that you do a screening and then later on find out how many patients had biliary atresia, you can trace back that each one of them had increased direct or conjugated bilirubin in the first couple of days after life. So I think that the evidence is clear that it starts prenatally. Now, why is it that it takes then a couple of weeks or a few weeks for the disease to become overt? I think that there is that initial epithelial injury, the inflammatory response, the body is trying to restore that epithelial continuity. And then there is a final imbalance with initial plug of the bioflow. And then the accumulation of bile acid starts this progressive cholangiopathy that leads to uh, the fibrosis that we know. In addition, studies by uh, Rebecca Wells and collaborators from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia show that the cholangiocytes of the young patient, so the neonatal cholangiocytes, lack some of the features that are present in adult cholangiocytes, such as a decreased glycocalyx, perhaps a propensity to uh, produce uh, matrix components, probably abnormal cell-cell junction. And these all create an environment in which the mild disruption of that epithelial continuity allows bile acid to infiltrate in the subepithelial compartment and then trigger this further inflammatory response or tissue reaction that leads to a progressive fibrosis and blockage of that bioflow. Wow, that's very interesting. So with that knowledge, what are the big advances that we have right now in the field uh, that allow early diagnosis and treatment of biliatresia? We have a better and give better value to some key serum biomarkers that have been historically relevant, such as a high gamma GT, uh, especially if a GGT is above 250 and 300 international units per liter. And you combine that with an ultrasound that has a contracted gallbladder and inability to visualize the extrahepatic bile ducts, it's a very high suspicion for biliary atresia. You can do more studies, but perhaps one should consider to quickly go to a more specific biomarker, such as matrix metalloproteinase 7 or the serum level of interleukin-33, or go to the biopsy to obtain additional information so that you can quickly make a decision about a referral. So we now know the value of historic biomarkers that should make us think more about biliary atresia. And in terms of how these uh, new uh, understanding of biliary atresia pathogens lead to potential treatment, the uh, Children Consortium, uh, Childhood Liver Disease Research Network, 
funded by the NIDDK, carried the START trial that used a, a placebo-controlled trial to determine the efficacy of the steroid following casiporenterostomy in babies with binary atresia. That trial showed that the use of corticosteroids to all babies do not lead to improved biliary drainage in the entire treated population com compared to placebo control. The difference with not statistical significance. I'm not sure that that is end of the potential use of corticosteroid in biliary atresia. The reason I say that is because there were a few case reports or uh, single center reports that show that the use of corticosteroids in the young, young child with biliary atresia may lead to an increased uh, response after CASI procedure. And indeed, a couple of uh, review papers uh, looking at the published evidence show that there is overall a trend towards improvement, but perhaps babies are younger age. But now we have new trials. For example, there's a trial, again, in Texas Children's Hospital that looked at the uh, use of intravenous N-acetylcysteine as an antioxidant and cholinetic reagent after CASI. I know they have closed the enrollment and they uh, will be reporting the results of that trial. But NEC or N-acetylcysteine remains a uh, potentially uh, viable strategy for future controlled clinical trials. Perhaps not just intravenous in the immediate postoperative period, but uh, in different trial design. And then I call your attention to two ongoing trials, one called the EMBARC trial or evaluation of maralixibat in biliary atresia response post-CASI. So this EMBARC trial evaluates the efficacy of uh, maralixibat, which is an inhibitor of the ileal bowel acid transporter. The concept is that by blocking the uptake of bowel acid, there is a decrease in bowel acid pool Therefore, there is an increased production of uh, bowel acid and hopefully greater bowel acid excretion, preventing that accumulation of bowel acid that may be seen in bilateral atresia, even after CASI. And that EMBARC trial measures the response as defined by the total bilirubin six months after CASI. The second trial is called the BOLD trial. B-O-L-D. That trial measures the efficacy and safety of another IBAT inhibitor called Odevixibat. And that trial actually uses that IBAT inhibitor trial, giving it daily and, the, and measure the outcome as the percent of patients that are alive with the native liver at two years of age. So the EMBARC trial is early primary endpoint with clearance of bilirubin whereas BOLD trial is actually a long-term treatment with the native uh, liver survival at two years of age. Wow, there's a lot to be coming here in the near future and related to biliary atresia. I had no idea about those trials. Yes. Yeah. So just to, just to kind of summarize, if you have a patient who had a CASI at this point, do you put them on any medication afterwards or what do you do 
you know, given all of this that you recently told us? We think in two terms. One is give what we know uh, is very important for the uh, patients after cancer, which is good medical care. Make sure that we optimize nutrition, uh, give babies fed soluble vitamins and follow them closely after discharge. At Cincinnati Children's, actually, we have a new protocol in which we customize the care of uh, patients post-CASI, take into account age and biology. So the younger the patient and whether the patient has inflammation in the liver, we use customized uh, strategies in addition to the general measurements of nutritional support that I mentioned to you. We hope to uh, report those results in the near future. But we also go to the second component of what I think today should be happening in every center that sees and treats patients with bilateral treatment, which is, is there any new open trial that we can offer the family uh, to see if we can actually improve, do everything we can using the knowledge and the tools that we can today in a controlled and safe fashion to try to improve the outcome of those babies. Indeed, if the baby has better response to CASI procedure, that's defined by low or normalization of of the serum bilirubin, this is the best indicator for long-term survival with the native liver. So combine these two, do what we know we should do for the patient, and then try to enroll the patient in the new trial. Yeah, you know, when I was a GI fellow, I did a rotation in surgery. And while I was on my surgical rotation, there was a patient who was having a CASI procedure that was a delayed diagnosis. And I was, I felt the fibrous cord and I tell you what, like, I mean, if I'm feeling this cord on my headphones, it was harder than this yes. cord. So that fibrosis, I mean, and the baby was quite young still, but it was, it was really impressive. I mean, I had never felt anything like that before. The fibrosis in bilateral treasure is probably one of the most rapidly progressive fibrosis that exists in humans. PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis, is another fibrosing cholangiopathy. But the evolution of fibrosis is quite slow, way different than the fibrosis of uh, babies with bilateral treatment and other cholangiopathies in adults. So it's quite, quite impressive. So Dr. Bezzero, just a follow-up question on the NSL cysteine use in uh, biliary atresia after CASI. What is the mechanism of NSL cysteine um, use in biliatresia? How does it work and how does it protect the liver? Sure, the potential mechanism by which N-acetylcysteine may improve bioflow and perhaps even decrease fibrosis is because it uh, provides the fuel for the glutathione system. This is an intracellular system that equilibrates uh, the oxidative dynamics uh, inside the cell. Indeed, uh, in our laboratory, we have done studies with very different hypotheses and goals, but when those studies led to fruition and we tried to understand why is it that the phenotype of the neonatal biliary system improved, often we come back to that oxidative stress that happens in the cholangiocyte. If you can improve that stress, the cholangiocytes actually have a increased survival, if you will. And uh, this is clearly associated with improved phenotype in the mouse model. 
And we usually use it for Tylenol. Tylenol. Yeah, toxicity. So it's very interesting to know um, how, what the mechanism of it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite intriguing. I want to talk a little more about MMP7. And can you just start by telling us the story of how you identified the MMP7's importance as it relates to biliary atresia? Yes, so our early studies always focused on how inflammation or the inflammatory response to that initial viral injury drove pathogens of disease. And we looked at several cytokines and we actually created many panels and tested whether those, the level of those cytokines increased in the serum of babies with biliary atresia. And they would improve, they would increase indeed. But when I would try to duplicate the studies, it was always very difficult. So we took a different approach. We said, listen, how about if we think for a moment that we do not know enough and let's use the best quantitative proteomics method to do a general screen of lots of proteins in one assay in the serum of babies with biliary atresia. The idea was if there is a biomarker, or if there are a set of biomarkers that can tell us this baby likely has biliary atresia, we will have advanced the field. So we did that. To our surprise, it was only one protein that came up among all the others that appeared to have a very high predictive value for biliary atresia. But what we did this time, before publication, we, we did we, we said, we want to validate it again. So we did the same proteomics, an unbiased fashion in a new set of babies with biliary atresia and the appropriate disease controls, use the same mathematical approach. And again, MMP7 came up as the sole protein. Then before we published, we did it a third time and again came back MMP7. With, after doing some studies in human tissues to find out why is it? Why could it be that a single protein goes up so much exclusively in babies with biliary atresia? What we found was that MMP7 actually is expressed in extra hepatic cholangiocytes and the gallbladder, and normally not in intrahepatic cholangiocytes. So that is one of the main distinguishing features so in biliary atresia, once, since we know that a lot of the injury occurs in the extrahepatic biliary system, you can then show the biological underpinning for the high level serum MMP7. So we finally published. It has already been uh, validated by other investigators and other countries and other centers. So it appears to have quite a bit of uh, predictive value for the disease and something that we can use in the clinic to improve our diagnostic algorithms, simplify, lower cost, and quickly send the patient to surgery when you feel comfortable that you have a lot high likelihood that the baby may have uh, biliary atresia. I was going to ask a couple of follow-up questions on that. Is this something available and you recommend as a screening for biliary atresia? So if a pediatrician is suspecting biliatresia, do you recommend they send the GGT and MMP7? That's my first question. My second question, is this something that we can identify 
intrauterine for somebody we suspect that might have biliatresia? Sure. I think the uh, answer to the first question is probably yes. Actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that every baby that remains jaundice at two weeks of age and beyond should have a fractionation of bilirubin. That is still probably the best initial strategy. And in babies that have an increase in the direct or conjugated bilirubin, any pediatrician can order the GGT, serum GGT, because indeed if high, it has, it just adds one more justification to be thinking and worrying about biliary atresia. And then MMP7, it's important to cautious that you are talking to someone that is very biased in favor of MMP7. So I think uh, it's important to wait for upcoming studies that, have, that are attempting to validate this as a, a, a wider patient population, if you will. But at least preliminary uh, results and reproducibility by other uh, investigators show that adding MMP7 early on uh, may really help uh, select uh, patients for immediate uh, quick evaluation. Now, to use MMP7 prior to delivery will be tough, right? Because I actually do not know if the mother would have a high MMP7. It's a very interesting concept. So thank you for the idea. Maybe we should be doing that, especially if there is any ultrasound that is suspicious for a cyst or some abnormality in the liver, right? Or umbilical blood. Or umbilical blood. Or a variation of that uh, is perhaps one can design a way to measure MMP7 in the dry blood spot that one can get their guess from a neonates. Could we use MMP7 to screen for biliary atresia? It is possible. I think that there may be attempts uh, to develop such an assay on a dry blood, but, but perhaps one can also see that there's a very cheap method to screen for babies, which is direct or conjugated bilirubin that is done almost in every baby that is born nowadays. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, we have the ability to order MMP7 in our EMR, but that is a newer thing. We didn't have that, you know, several years ago. And so how do people even order it if they're wanting to get the MMP7? I think several laboratories now throughout the nation have a, a simple order sheet that can uh, collect one ml of blood in the right tube, and then uh, ship to Cincinnati Children's. Again, it's, uh, I, I don't want to, to be all about this hospital. I think that there will be other laboratories that, will, that may be uh, running MMP7, but it's a simple blood test. It's a quick assay. It's done the same day. And at least I know that uh, in uh, Cincinnati Children's, it's done three times a week, so there's a quick turnaround time. It's important that whichever hospital and laboratory gets approved to run MMP7 using one of the validated assays, that it is done in a fast, rapid turnaround. Because again, the goal here is to identify or detect new indicators that may increase the likelihood that the patient may have biliary atresia so that one can proceed and expedite evaluation and increase access to surgery or not pursue further evaluation uh, to make sure that the babies do not go unnecessary testing, liver biopsy, and so forth. 
Before we move on, Tamara, I want to go back to your prior comment about viral illnesses. Have you seen any changes related to the COVID-19 virus? As far as, you know, are we seeing more biliary atresia now? Are we seeing delayed diagnosis? Well, the first part of your question is a very interesting question because in the liver, cholangiocyte is the cell type that has the highest expression of the receptor for COVID-19. Yet, no, we have not seen any increase in the incidence of cases of biliary atresia during the COVID-19 pandemic. Your second, uh, the second part of your question, uh, have we seen a delay in diagnosis of babies with biliary atresia during the pandemic? Uh, I can't say that there is a timely relationship, but every now and then for the past two to three years, we have seen patients coming to our center uh, close to three months or so of age, which uh, is very unfortunate. Uh, we do not know if there was a difficulty in accessing care because of the pandemic, or if there was a delay in paying attention by the parent and or the provider about how to take the next step and evaluate the babies with persistent jaundice. That's very interesting. Um, I'd like to talk about biliary organoids. And uh, you should yeah. show yeah, <laughs> organoids. <laughs> so for our listeners, can you tell us what biliary organoids are and uh, how you're using them to better understand biliary, biliary atresia? Well, yes. and before you start, this is the first conversation of organoids that we're having on bowel sounds. So even more general than just biliary organoids, what is an organoid? And what does organoids have to do with bowel sounds? Well, very interesting. <laughs> the concept of organoids is uh, mini organs. Um, so the idea is, can we actually develop a strategy to generate human mini organs? If the answer is yes, we can actually bring any experimental result closer to human biology because these are multicellular organs. Now, what does organoids have to do with bowel sounds? The first successful creation of a human organoid was actually humans enteroids. This was done using cells that were enriched from the crypt of the human intestine. And then they were cultured in a specific way that generated these visible structures that it was a representation of the human intestinal epithelium in this organization with the villus and crypts. This was followed by investigators who very cleverly used inducible pluripotent stem cells that were derived from an adult human cell. So you can get an adult human cell. It could be a fibroblast. It could be a, a mononuclear blood cell. You genetically make the cells go back to a pluripotent stage, and then you guide its forward development to make mini intestinal organoids. Now, for the biliary organoids that you talked about, we further attempted to simplify the process. So instead of using genetics to make the cell be reprogrammed to a pluripotent stem cell-like stage, all that we do, we get this tiny little uh, 
tiny liver biopsies from babies with biliary atresia and other diseases. We mess the liver and we culture these small pieces of liver with special growth factors. And over time, we see the emergence of these spheres, what we call spheroids. We then uh, reculture those, those spheroids to make it a more uniform growth of these uh, small little balls. And then when we cut them, we see that they're actually made of cells that resemble cholangiocytes. When we actually use molecular markers to investigate what these cells are, they do have markers of cholangiocytes. So we call them biliary organoids. Now, if these organoids come from babies with biliary atresia, we actually saw that they have some of the features that were described by Dr. Wells from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that I talked about earlier in this podcast, which was that they don't have the very tight intercellular junction. So they may have a little bit of separation, easy to break those intercellular junctions. They may not produce as much uh, mucus to protect the cholangiocytes and other features. So we call them biliary organoids. And indeed, they appear to keep the memory of the disease. If I culture these cholangiocyte organoids or biliary organoids from a normal human liver, they look different than the cholangiocyte or biliary organoids that come from a baby with biliary atresia. So we think that this may be a very powerful experimental tool to study biliary atresia. So mainly it is to know what the pathogenesis of biliary atresia is, is that correct? Then actually fixing it, put it putting it back in into the patient and kind of reversing the disease. All the possibilities need to be explored. Okay. Today, we are, look, we are using it to study how is it that these cells come to be who they are and how it relates to pathogens of disease. But think about it. Could it be that the ability to derive these biliary organoids correlates with the response to Kasai operation, for example? Can we use this to actually try new drugs and see which patients may be best suitable to be treated with drug A, drug B, or drug C? Or perhaps, could we actually use this to derive um, or engineer uh, human biliary systems, coat and form some new ways to generate tubes or connections or pathways that connect the liver to the small intestine. Indeed, a group from uh, Europe actually did that experimentally, trying to see if these biliary organoids can repopulate the liver, create bile ducts, and actually perhaps repair some of the mucosa in the exohepatic system, including the gallbladder. So all the possibilities uh, should be considered and studied. We're very early in studies relating to biliary organoids. That's very interesting. So enteroids is like bowel sounds and biliary yes. organoids is like liver talks. I like that. <laughs> I like that.
Well, I was I was just thinking when you were describing how you made the organoids, I couldn't help but think like you just kind of mix up some miracle grow. Next thing you know, you have an organoid. It is just like that. You keep looking at it and then you can begin to see these spheres emerging. And that's quite exciting. No question that's about so it. So interesting. Yeah. Has anybody made one of those, you know how they have those uh, videos where you can speed up time and watch something grow? Have they done that with these organoids? We have done it a slightly different. What we do is once we have the organoids, we break them up and then we plate them. Uh, and we do time-lapse microscopy. Oh, so we can nice. actually uh, take frequent pictures for five days, make a video clip, and then you see how these organoids uh, form and they grow and they actually begin to join each other and make a bigger and bigger uh, organoids. It's quite wow, cool. So interesting. That is so cool. That's so cool. If you provide us a clip, we, we would be able to promote that on Twitter. <laughs> You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we have talked about so much about how far the study of biliary atresia has gone. And really, we are living in the future. I mean, we're talking about organoids and all of these trials that are coming out. If you had to look into the future, where are we going? You know, should our young listeners and trainees pick up an interest in biliary atresia? What should they explore? I hope they do. I really hope that will be a great outcome from this Liver Talk podcast. There are three <laughs> areas, three areas that I think will really drive the future. The first one is how can we, as a community of pediatricians, convince our uh, policymakers and enable widespread neonatal screening of biliary atresia. If these babies can be diagnosed early, they will have better outcome. So I think that neonatal screening for biliary atresia uh, should be a priority uh, to make the future uh, realization. The second is, if we are going to diagnose early, how can we better phenotype the patient? different ways, perhaps molecularly, perhaps histologically, perhaps by uh, looking at the clinical characteristics combined with key markers. Can we personalize care? Perhaps targeted anti-inflammatory agents, depleting cell types, perhaps using uh, cholinergic agents early on. And then the third component is how can we stop? How can we block this progressive fibrosis of the liver? Even after Kasai, now that we have removed this atretic fibrosed biliary remnant, remember that there is progressive fibrosis within the liver. And can we use anti-fibrosis medication uh, to slow down this fibrosis? One of the published studies, uh, again, point towards the use of antioxidants such as uh, N-acetylcysteine, but perhaps there will be others that will be coming up. So those three areas uh, may be guiding uh, future research as they have perhaps more uh, chances to improve the outcome of babies with uh, biliary atresia. They can grow into the future with the native liver and be productive, healthy citizens. 
That's amazing. Wow. Those are really good areas of uh, research for a lot of our young listeners and um, everybody that's interested in biliatresia. So that's very interesting. So Dr. Bezer, it's been great talking to you. Um, Looking back on your career so far, what is the most valuable advice have you received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, very wise advice I received uh, from my mentors uh, was to remain very curious and follow your curiosity. Hopefully align it with what we really want to do. In other words, uh, follow your passion. Uh, Make sure that what you do uh, means something to you. And when you do it, and you get tired, you still want to do more. And you, you are tired, but uh, have a, a sense of uh, accomplishment that you want to do this. I also learned that it's very important to let, if you are doing research, let your results guide your work. Assess the results from different angles. Make sure that you're not looking at what you want to see, but try to just look at the facts as they are. And then it is, it is actually okay that your original idea was wrong. If you follow the biology, you will probably find something very interesting. I would actually go one step further and venture to say that these principles also apply to our clinical life. So when you go to see the patient, listen to them. Have what you learn, guide your decision-making. And then don't forget to follow the patient up. In other words, assess the impact of your decision on the patient's outcome. So I think that doing research and being a clinician are not mutually exclusive. One actually complements the other. Lastly, but not least, don't work alone. Work as a team. Uh, train others and trust, collaborate, and probably most important than all, learn to listen. Yeah, that's very valuable advice. And it's true, you really want to have a hypothesis and make that like uh, the hypothesis or your research idea actually be uh, correct. But then if you just follow the research, you might come up with a better idea and uh, something more impactful and valuable. I mean, tomorrow you came up with an idea today. MMP7 in the- (laughs) Prenatal. Prenatal. And maybe early screening for- (laughs) Yes, yes. That's when a conversation like that actually generates idea for all of us. That's great. All of our listeners. Well, Dr. Bezerra, you know, this hour has gone by so fast. Thank you so much for taking the time to prioritize coming to Bell Sounds. As we're closing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Yes, uh, stay healthy, celebrate science, not only how it's giving us insight into mechanisms of biliary atresia and potential strategies that we can use to improve that outcome, celebrate science even today as we know that as we face a devastating pandemic we can actually celebrate the ability to generate vaccine in such a short period of time a vaccine that can actually either prevent us from getting sick 
or changing a devastating disease into a mild cold. So I hope that those that listen today and those that listen to this liver talk 50 years from now, remember when we said, get vaccinated, get boosted, stay, use your mask when your potential for virus exposure is greater and help each other. I think that I've enjoyed this hour talking to you about biliary We've enjoyed changer, having you. And I hope that we continue to work together uh, again. Yeah, I hope I continue to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you very much we really appreciate it bye bye what a great episode Tamara I think you are so lucky to get to work with Dr. Bezerra I've learned a lot I've learned a lot about organoids I didn't really know too much about it but that's wow pretty cool it's miracle it's grow. Like, yeah who would yeah. have known like the future is very interesting if you don't already be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram and at bow sounds and on facebook at, at pediatric gi podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes and if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things maybe tell one person about the podcast Leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast and like it. And uh, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public educational programs. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thank you all. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.